Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is swim. Uh, full disclosure, I knew swim in a previous lifetime. And um, uh, so we're going to discuss the beautiful man he has turned into. And um, yeah, where he is, where he where he's been and what he's learned along the way. So swim, thank you for joining us on social work your life. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here and happy to see you. So good to see you. So what? tell me where you are right now. Right now, I am in Los Angeles. Um, I live with uh, my one of my producers and his friend. And I am working on getting my PhD at the University of California, Irvine. So the, you just dropped two really big things, right? You're like, <laughs> I, I live with my producer and I am getting a PhD. Yeah. Which one of those do you want to talk about first? Uh, let's talk about producer. Okay, let's talk about producer. So <laughs> tell me tell me about tell me about that. Tell me about swim. Um, I make music. I mean, I feel like when I first met you, I was making music too. Um, so I've been making music my whole life, really. Um, to a certain degree, um, I would say that the music kind of got me to the PhD world. Um, insofar as like writing songs, thinking about music, um, was probably my entryway into philosophy and liking philosophy. And so I make music as Swim. Um, I have like two albums out, um, like two EPs. And uh, yeah, that's kind of what I do. I, that's kind of how. I, I'm, I also have like a fashion brand. So like I, I do I do clothes and stuff like that. And that's kind of like my outside life of the academy. So wait a minute, you do a fashion brand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Does that mean you're being sponsored by a fashion brand or you're creating uh, a fashion brand yourself? Yeah, I create a fashion brand myself. Um, I'm a part of, uh, it's, I'm the co-creative director for a brand called Acrylic Matter. My friend from college started it. Um, and um, then eventually when I moved out to California, I was kind of like brought on board to help with like just different aspects of it. Like, uh, just like photo shoots, promotion, uh, video. And um, I also started to get more into design since I started to like really work with him. And so that's kind of like what I do more so now um, too. And so like, I'm just like, I, I, I just like have a real creative side and then I have a real, I guess like philosophical side too. And I kind of blend them both together in a lot of ways. Yeah. So you're producing music, you're writing your own lyrics. You're mm -hmm. not you're not doing anybody else's songs, you're doing swim songs. Oh, I write I write songs for other people too. I people don't write for me, but I write for other people. You write for yeah. other people. <laughs> yeah, I, as as honestly, I really like to do that too. I like I like songwriting for other people too. That's really amazing. Um and then with, with, I want to get back to the songwriting in a moment and I want to get back to the philosophy in a moment because I remember you as a philosopher. <laughs> um, and then I want to talk a little bit about the PhD. Mm -hmm. Do you think if we go down the PhD road, it's going to take us down a completely different road and we're never going to get back here? Or do you think, do you think I we should think, continue with the music? 
I think that um I think that we'll be able to we'll go. be able to circ circumnavigate. Okay. Yeah. So all right, here we go. <clears throat> Talk to me about the PhD. I'm getting my PhD in comparative literature at a University of California, Irvine. Um, I got my undergraduate degree in philosophy at Towson University with a minor in creative writing. Um, oh, the PhD at Irvine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like. Go ahead. I feel like. Um, I feel like comparative literature in a lot of ways is honestly a very interesting form of like creative writing and philosophy, to be honest. Um, even in like the way that, you know, a lot of times when I'm talking to people who might not know what comparative literature is at all, um, I tend to just say I'm studying philosophy. And um, I like that comparative literature really is philosophy but it's also literature and it's also kind of both of those things um as like indistinguishable so for our listener who has no idea what comparative literature is can you give like the elevator version of a definition yeah uh i mean i i'd say like historically comparative literature has been the study of literature from different geographic locations. And so you would compare basically, you know, literature in Europe to literature and I mean, literature in France to literature in Germany, for example. For the same time period or two different time periods? Yeah, it could be the same time period a lot of times, or it'd be different time periods. A lot of times like, you know, older dissertations might be like very time specific. Okay. Um, But and sometimes now too. But I would say like now, you know, like comparative literature is similar to that, but it's also like very highly theoretical. And so it could be, you know, the study of philosophy from different geographical locations rather than just, you know, like fiction or novels and stuff like that. No, that makes total sense. And so you're 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 doing philosophy from different time period, different regions that are along the same time period. Yeah, so I study basically like you call it black philosophy, black theory. Uh, technically, it's a lot of French philosophy. Like I'm very into French philosophy, and uh, it's kind of like impossible <laughs> to do philosophy and not study German philosophy. And so there's a lot of that too. But I I actually really have a thing for um Italy too. Like Italian philosophers are pretty interesting to me as well. Amazing. So how far along in your studies are you? What what label would you give yourself? Well, technically now I'm a PhD candidate. Um, and so that means that I really just have to uh, finish my dissertation to be um, to receive my doctorate. So you're you've done all the coursework. You've done mm -hmm. the 60 credits that you need in order to qualify to do the PhD. I mean, the dissertation. And now mm -hmm. you're in the is the dissertation written is it like mostly written? Is it like fully written? Like where is uh, it in the writing of it? I have the prospectus done, which is something similar to like an introduction, like the introductory chapter. I have the chapters outlined and uh, that's where I'm at. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. So do you teach classes over the summer? I teach classes during the year. I teach classes less so during the summer. Um, 
I usually spend the summertime trying to like really work on my research um I guess technically making music too and um and so I, I teach a black fashion studies class and during the year and it's basically technically a writing and research class but um the theme is on uh black fashion studies which is basically like a it's basically like you know we study like the history the culture the sort of like sociological issues and stuff like that having to do with black fashion that's fascinating i want to be in your class yeah i would love to have you <laughs> am i allowed to give you as much grief as you gave me <laughs> uh, <laughs> please don't <laughs> there was a moment you hated me um um, <laughs> um so what what brought you i know you mentioned music and you mentioned um you mentioned music and you mentioned philosophy and these two things kind of congealing and me, I even saw these when you were quite young. Um, but what, what geared you toward this specific topic at this time? Um, so, I mean, my, my research um, is on black suicide and there was a couple of different factors, I guess you could say intellectually and biographically and like the intersection of that, that brought me to that question. Mm -hmm. um, I was always interested in Albert Camus when I first started getting into philosophy. And uh, he has a quote that says that the biggest philosophical problem is suicide. Um, deciding whether or not life is or is not worth living basically amounts to like the fundamental question of philosophy. Um, and so that always honestly kind of drove me into philosophy. And even when I wasn't really reading him, I was always sort of thinking about that. And then I, um, I guess I started getting involved with activism um, in Baltimore and I started to learn about this theory, Afro-pessimism, in the middle of that. Um, and Afro-pessimism basically became like my sort of like philosophical outlook. And what's your definition of Afro-pessimism? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so I'm like... I. Yeah. I it's okay I'm, to be sloppy. It's okay yeah, to get out it, in like in like <laughs> chunky words that don't always yeah. get together. As I was gonna say, like the most simplified, like, I guess, like form of the way that I can try to explain it. Um, Afro pessimism is a a a form of analysis mm -hmm. that um, looks at other forms of analysis, specifically on the ways in which people have suffered and um, tries to understand why these analysis of suffering have not been able to really grasp 
black suffering. Um, and so um, in that sense, Afro-pessimism starts from what we would say is like the position of the slave mm -hmm. and tries to understand um, how they have not been understood. Yeah. Okay, so you're in Baltimore and you're coming to understand Afro-pessimism and you're coming to like, and you're going to like activist movements, mm -hmm. right? So, mm -hmm. so, but now you're in California. So like, walk me through. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, I want to, uh, uh, basically California is like where, um, I mean, UCI specifically is kind of like the hub of Afro-pessimism. It's where the quote-unquote like founding theorists of Afro-pessimism um, uh, work. And so um, basically when I started to apply to graduate programs, I applied to... Um, I applied to basically a bunch of different programs, a lot of programs in philosophy, a lot of programs in African-American studies, um, even American studies. Um, and then I only got accepted into California University. <laughs> and so uh, I got accepted into Berkeley, AF, uh, AFAM. I got accepted into USC's American studies. And I got accepted into UCI comparative literature. And I chose UCI comparative literature. Um, yeah, and that's kind of the way that I got here. I mean, I think that Afro-pessimism in the most like simplified sense is kind of uh, very, it's always very philosophical, but it's very interested in how violence um, and thought are connected. Mm -hmm. And um, my kind of research intervention, like, is really interested in how, like, Black people's um, thought of suicide is connected to the violence that they experience in the world. I have a question you may not want to answer. Mm -hmm. And it's okay if you don't want to answer this. But have you experienced violence? Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, you know, the concept um, in Afro-pessimism that we use a lot, that I do think is very characteristic of my experience through life, is gratuitous violence. Mm -hmm. And um, this is supposed to be sort of like juxtaposed from contingent violence which is, you know, like, you know, every now and again, you experience violence. Um, I think that black people, and I think that therefore includes myself, um, experience gratuitous violence. And so um, it's the kind of thing that happens all the time. Um, and so, yeah, definitely growing up and living, I feel like I've experienced a lot of violence. Do you always feel safe when you were growing up, going from town to town as an African-American male? Oh, for sure not. 
Um, but you said for sure. I was like, what? But then you threw the knot in there. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, for sure not. <laughs> yeah, I think. Um, Do you want to bring me in a little bit about what that was like, like some real experiences? One of the one of the experiences I always talk about because I feel like it's very illustrative of the world. Um, even if it's just my experience. Um growing up in Cecil County, there was a time where I was in elementary school and my family, I mean, because you go we would go together, you know, with my sister, my brother and I. Uh, when we would walk towards the bus, there would be a man on the front porch that would just be screaming to go back to Africa or just, you know, sometimes even just the N-word. And at the time, it was so normal because that's just what I was used to. It was like, oh, that man's going to say some wild stuff, like, <laughs> you know, as we walk to the bus stop. Yeah, yeah. But when I think about it as I'm older, I think about how insane it is to just be a grown man mm -hmm. who feels the need to address a child in that way. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, eventually there was a situation that at least I, I, you know, I, I heard happens that the man uh, ended up getting arrested and committing suicide actually in prison. Oh, really? Yeah. And his family, because my sister was friends with his daughter. Okay. Um, came to my mother's house afterwards and asked if she could bake a cake for his funeral. And I always think about the story because it's insane. And it's insane kind of whichever way you put it. And um, I say it because when I was younger, it, it, it wasn't insane to me. It wasn't until I was able to really reflect on what a normal childhood, quote unquote, is supposed to be like, and really recognize that like, that's not the experience you get. Not the experience we want our community to have. Yeah. Right. Like you, you should be able to walk to the bus without being harassed. For sure. For sure. For and sure. I, the irony that, okay, first I have like questions, like how did she ever become friends with his daughter? Like, how did that even happen? Like, I don't like, right. Because how did he even allow that to happen? And then the irony that you're using, she's using your kitchen to make a cake for a man who. <laughs> threw racial slurs at you every day when you went to the bus. And she wanted to. My mom ended up, my mom said no. Um, and at the same time, you know, it's, it's really funny because, you know, when you learn more about the history of slavery, it, it makes sense because oftentimes uh, white masters would allow their children to play with the slaves, even though the condition upon which that would happen is if 
it's still understood that they are inferior. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I look at that situation, I look at it similar to that where um, there probably was still even reluctance, you know, because I feel like that's a lot of what, I mean, literally, I know growing up um, in retrospect, it was like where parents would reluctantly allow their kids to play with you if you were black. Um, but they would allow it. <laughs> and so um, that's just something that for sure. I, and, and like the experience of that becomes gratuitous because then every one of your relationships is still sort of clouded by that as a possibility. Um, that the so person even, you're friends with would start yelling the things or saying the things or thinking the things or that their parents would say it or think it or yell it. If I'm like the most honest with you, I would say that it's both like, mm -hmm. Um, like let's let then I'll be I'll try to be as uh transparent or clear as possible. Yeah, no, um, I um it, it it's it's why you know Afro pessimists sometimes talk about the difficulty or impossibility of um coalitions and then sometimes even friendship. And it's because to a certain degree, despite what a lot of people might even be willing to face, um, it's because the world is structured in such a way that even if you are friendly towards me, you still have the power over me that exists, for example, and just the possibility that you can call me the N-word and that would mean that I'm less. So it's a yeah. So do you do you well? I don't know if I want to go there. I might I might filter that. I'm filtering. <laughs> I will I will ask you that question offline. Mm -hmm. Um. How do you think all of this comes into your music? Well, that's a good question. I think it comes into my music as a a disposition. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that I have learned in some weird way to congeal all the things I've read in philosophy into just a way of being in the world. And so sometimes it's not like there's explicit things I say from a book or like from an idea of something that I read, but it is the feeling that knowing that information gave me hmm. that might generate a song or something like that. Um, and so it's very interesting. It's, it's sometimes it's, it's very divorced, but it's not. Um, I feel like there's like a way that people would expect me to take up the stuff that I read, but 
the stuff that I read kind of affects me differently. Like it's one thing to know this or to understand this in this way. And it's another thing to uh, live with it or to even feel the way that truth makes you feel. And so I feel like the music is sometimes just, you know, this is how, you know, this understanding or this way of thinking makes me feel. Which leads me to questions about your feelings and mental health. Mm. Do you think, I guess, I mean, this is a stupid question. Do, do you think your mental health is better because of the music? Mm. Or do you think it like plays into the problems because you're repeating the same feeling over and over? Mm. That's a good question. Um, I definitely think that it helps me. Um, I think that, you know, the lowest I've ever been in my life was the least amount of time music was in my life. Mm. So there was like literally a parallel um, between those two points. Um, and so that's why even a lot of times, you know, I feel like I'm very, I'm very open to a lot of different music in general because I recognize that music for a lot of people is not a logic. Mm. It is a, it is a way of just getting something out, and I recognize that a lot of people want there to be this very logical, methodical answer in music. That I mean, sometimes music is not for that. It's just to lay something bare. You know what? That actually that resonates with your music very much. Mm. That that actually, yeah. Thank you. Thank you.